Thanks very much, everyone. Um, has anybody read the blog? Did anybody heard of it? Couple? Okay. Uh, I've been writing the blog now for about 18 months or so, and I've had a very long-standing interest in the malign supernatural. None of the well-adjusted good stuff, unfortunately, always just the malign stuff. And the blog concentrates on that and concentrates on why people believe in, uh, in supernatural beings in general. And it's, it's an integral part of being human, so I call it superstition, religion, and the human condition. Um, of course, that's only, that's only a hobby. I don't do that for a day job. That wouldn't be a very sensible day job. Uh, that's my day job, um, in part. I work in the film industry, and I also get to be in them occasionally. So this is that was um, in Terry Gilliam's *The Brothers Grimm*. I played the incredibly old, ugly queen. The beautiful queen was played by uh, Monica Bellucci, but I get to play all the ugly ones. And really, I'm more normally behind the scenes. Uh, the, the the front stuff is done by actors and actresses. I just have fun with that. This was Kevin O'Malley from *1408* and uh, we put them, if I look a bit knackered there, it's because we were up at three o'clock in the morning to put that on. So um, that's a uh, you know, silly hobby, silly job, but that's uh, basically what my life is all about. Now I've been fascinated by the malign supernatural for ages, and really there are different categories of um, malign supernatural. You've got vampires, you've got werewolves, you've got zombies, and I think with, um, with absolutely lamentable taxonomy sometimes, they're all referred to as vampires. You have Malaysian vampires, you have Indian vampires. And it's, uh, it's a habit I don't like because I think that you end up carrying a lot of the baggage from one type of creature onto a place where it may not be appropriate. I think the terminology is actually better to stay with the terminology and, and to stick to the facts of, of the creatures where they come from. So I tend to call them unnatural predators. Natural predators being wolves, Coyotes, well, not wolves actually. Wolves don't really um, don't really hurt people unless they're desperate. But say bears, coyotes, that kind of thing. And then the unnatural ones are the supernatural beings from every culture and every time that people have regarded as preying on human beings in some essential way. There are a few things that, um, that there are many different ways of looking at this, and I don't think there's one definitive answer. You can't say it is this. But there are different insights that you can get from looking at different phenomena. And it isn't possible really to separate someone from their neurons or to separate their psychology from their neuroscience or to separate their interactions with other people. But um, because they're all part of the same thing. But nonetheless, we do regard people as, as sort of you know, bundles of, of physical neurons. We regard them as psychological beings acting individually, and we look at them as social beings acting in a social context. So we can look at people at these different levels and get different insights onto why uh, there may be such popular belief in the line supernatural. For example, um, one of the, the things that's interesting to look at at a social level is scapegoating. It's a very, very... Um, it's... it's it, you find scapegoating everywhere, especially at times of social change or uh, where there's a shortage of resources, something like that. The scapegoating mechanism arises in, in human groups a lot, and um, really we'll see later that actually getting around together and uh, perhaps running a stake through the heart of a corpse is a more benign form of scapegoating. I mean, after all, if you can go and do dreadful things to living people, that's infinitely worse. Um, so we, we see social scapegoating with a lot of malign supernatural. You can have biological. Um, Chris has done an awful lot of work on sleep paralysis. I've suffered a lot from sleep paralysis my whole life, and I can tell you it's an extremely compelling experience, and if you didn't have a rational explanation, 
it would be very easy to believe in the supernatural one. Uh, a lot of people have suffered from sleep paralysis at some point in their lives, and you can see why that would create and contribute to a great deal of benign folklore. And then you have um, psychological aspects, just the way that we function. Evolution has made us, we have been created in such a way that we work in a way which is useful for survival, but it doesn't, it isn't always true. We don't always uh, perceive the truth, whatever that should be, it's a philosophical concept really, but, uh, but we do see things in a way that is useful for our survival, and as a result of which people display pretty systematic cognitive biases, and some of these become evident when you study the malign supernatural. One of uh, what, an idea I'd like to introduce at this point is theory of mind, and here I've got this this quote um, I think from David Premack: "Theory of mind is the ability to attribute mental states, beliefs, intents, desires, pretending knowledge, etc., to oneself and others, and to understand that others have beliefs, desires, and intentions that are different from one's own." Having a theory of mind allows one to attribute thoughts, desires, and intentions to others, or to predict or explain their actions, and to posit their intentions. And you can imagine how incredibly useful that is. If you think that somebody has got something else going on in their mind, which is independent to what's going on in your mind, you can seek to manipulate their behavior, you can seek to appease them, all number of things. And there are different levels of theory of mind where he thinks that she thinks that he thinks that she thinks. And it gets very, very complicated. And it's very, very useful. Um, on the left-hand side here is David Pramack. He wrote uh, a classic paper, Does the Chimpanzee Have a Theory of Mind? with um, another guy called Woodruff. I can't remember his first name. And um, they, they were talking about do chimps, do primates, have display theory of mind as well. Well, of course they do. I mean, they're, they're very, very bright animals. I was talking to Chris earlier about whether or not cats and dogs do. You've only got to live with a cat for two minutes before you know that it knows what's going on in your head and it knows how to manipulate you. So <laughs> I, I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. The problem with theory of mind and intentionality, as Daniel Dennett calls a similar thing, he's, he's on the right there. The problem with theory of mind is it's very, very difficult to switch off. Um, you can easily see agents and you can see intentionality in the environment, even where it may not be the case. There you can see, I'm sure all of you are far too sensible to impute malign intentions to inanimate objects, but um, some people do, and, and this is what happens. Uh, this, I mean, we, we've all done it, we've all sworn and shouted at our computers and other people have famously done it too. It's, um, it's not at all unusual. and so. When you have an illustration like this, which is the triumph of death, that's Flemish in the 15th century, and you can see death is actually personified. Uh, there are a lot of types of personifications of death like this as a, as a skeleton with a, a scythe. And, uh, and so it, it's not just a random force that's occurring. People have many, for many reasons, they may not believe in it literally, but it's, it's a human tendency to sort of condense and encapsulate these ideas down into a personality. And um, I, I think we see that a, a great deal with, with death and with, um, deadly type, uh, with deadly type events. This is a quote from the Bible. The day of our years are three score and ten, and if by reason of strength there be four score years, yet, it is their strength, yet, yet is their strength labour and sorrow. Now, encapsulated in that is the idea that there is a natural and proper um, time to die. 
Nobody really likes it. There is a lot of uh, mythology. The Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, is about Gilgamesh's quest for eternal life. Nobody really is happy about the idea that they die at the appropriate time. But nonetheless, people do seem to be a great deal more at peace with it than they are with what people regard as inappropriate deaths. Those are categories of people who haven't done their three school years at ten and just pegged out quietly and happily, having finished everything. Um, you've got categories of death which really attract a lot of unnatural uh, predator folklore. One of them is plague and epidemic death, and we'll be touching on that later. One of them is women who die in childbirth, another very big category of, uh, of victims of unnatural predator and unnatural predators themselves. After they've died, they come back and get people. And the other one is babies and children. This is a personification of the plague. You can see the guy up here, he's, um, he looks like he's got smallpox, actually. It's pretty horrible. I always say if we were going to do that in a film, we'd do it with Rice Krispies. Uh, but that's, it's not incredibly replicable. We'd probably do it with, uh, with foam latex, really. But people do believe me on that sometimes. But the actors have a tendency to eat their own makeup, so you, you can't actually do that in reality. Um, this, it, you've got death up there inflicting this man with smallpox. And he, he is the genius of smallpox. He goes round. It's, it's actually personified. And in our modern times, you've only got to look at... The, the, the modern problem with people not vaccinating their children for some really dreadful diseases, to realise that we've been lulled into a very false sense of security in relation to health and epidemic disease. For most of human history, and in fact for most human beings living in the world at this point in time, epidemic death was and is a huge consideration. We are tremendously privileged. Uh, smallpox doesn't exist anymore. We were that close to not having polio, except there was a conspiracy theory in Africa. Um, where the, the idea was that uh, the, the antidote, the um, vaccination to polio was, was spreading infertility among women. But, you know, there's black death, there's cholera, there's smallpox, um, syphilis, you know, every kind of virulent death that you can think of has, has happened in the past. It's been really, really unpleasant for people. And a lot of people did die of epidemic death. It was uh, tuberculosis was another one. Um, I've got a list of plagues here, you probably don't need to see them because anybody who's read a history book will know that this is actually a very big player in, in history. Uh, so what you have is, that's a, um, an outbreak of plague in Marseille in 1723. Uh, and that is an image of Carly. Carly is a goddess. She's kind of, she's, she's two-faced actually because she's, she's very good in that she's, um, she sweeps away the old things in order to make room for the new, but she is undoubtedly uh, a death goddess and uh, it's, it's been wondered actually if her black skin is down to the fact that uh, cholera sufferers end up getting a black skin because they get incredibly dehydrated they, they don't have sort of translucent good skin uh, so she's <coughs> thought to be responsible for epidemic death this is um, from Golestan Palace in 1568 and this is a depiction of Ali and the Jinn and jinn in Middle Eastern folklore were thought to inflict disease as well. So again, you have these malign supernatural creatures, the personification of epidemic diseases that people were regularly exposed to. And probably something you might not be aware of because the fashion for the vampire recently is some sort of brooding, erotic, very attractive kind of a guy. Has anybody seen True Blood? Not like him. <laughs> This is, oh, actually, no, I missed her out. She was, um, that's a, a, a Lennon She, that's a, 
she's thought to be a muse. She's an Irish fairy person, and she would be a muse for um, for artists and writers. Uh, but she also the, the other side of the bargain was that she would suck the life out of you. People, you, you know, your typical nineteenth-century uh, tubercular consumptive type of artist. She would um, she would suck the life, and people would die of tuberculosis, having created beautiful works of art. I don't know whether or not any of you would regard that as a decent uh, exchange. Here is um, the Nosferatu. That's the nineteen twenty-two version, and this is Klaus Kinski in the remake. They're both very good films. And uh, in both of these films, the vampire is explicitly associated with a plague that goes down the coast of the Black Sea as Count Orlok moves from his, his home to catch up with the Englishman. I don't think they were allowed to use the name Jonathan Harker because the original <coughs> Nosferatu was actually regarded as being a rip-off um, of Dracula. So they had to change names and places. But explicitly, these vampires, they're not particularly attractive and they are associated with death and disease and destruction. Now, the thing about vampirism is it's... Um, it was introduced as a concept to Western Europe in the early 1700s. The word first appeared in about 1734 in English, um, in the London Chronicle. And, but that isn't to say that the concept of a vampire in its homeland in Eastern Europe didn't exist. What happened was that the history of those areas was such that the Ottoman Empire sometimes owned a bit the Austrian, the Austrian Empire sometimes owned a bit, and they were fighting over that middle ground. And what happened was uh, there was a very decisive um, battle. There was the Peace of Pesarevich, and it just, in one fell swoop, moved a lot of land back from the Ottoman Empire. You had Catholic authorities from the Austrian Empire going in and administering people who had been religiously actually pretty much left to their own devices. They didn't have to convert to Islam. You had Lutherans you had Greek and Eastern Orthodox. You weren't allowed to be Catholic because that was the religion of, of the ever-present enemy. But, but nonetheless, they, they were free to practice their own religious practices, which um, combined a little of Greek and Orthodox uh, Christianity with, um, with folk belief as well. And so the accounts that we get back from this time, and this was a very popular time for vampires in, in Western Europe, come from essentially the fact that the, Australi that the Austrians went over to Serbia and places like that and incredulously said, what the hell is going on? These people are digging up corpses. What, why on earth are they doing this? This is a description from the time by a guy called uh, Johann Zoff of what they said the vampire was at the time. Vampires issue forth from their graves at night, attack people sleeping quietly in their beds, suck out all the blood from their bodies and destroy them. Um, it's quite often not mentioned actually that they don't... <coughs> the, the sucking out their blood is metaphorical. There aren't many accounts of somebody literally with the little marks in their throat like you get in modern fictional occurrences. The idea is the blood is the life and somebody would just suffer from uh, a general decline and the idea was that their, their blood was going. Um, but it, there wasn't necessarily a direct sucking thing going on. Uh, those that are under the fatal malignity of their influence complain of suffocation and a total deficiency of spirits, after which they soon expire. Some who, when at the point of death, have been asked if they can tell what's causing their decease, reply that persons lately dead have arisen from the tomb to torment and torture them. So you have the recently dead being named as the perpetrators of this disease. Now, when you, 
it's very clear from that there's a couple of things. First of all, there's blaming the death for death. And that's actually a reasonably sound idea because death is contagious after all, perhaps not the way we live particularly, but certainly the way all of our ancestors until very, very recently lived. Death is contagious. Um, and uh, the, the other thing is that people, people declined slowly, or, or actually you could, you could even get people declining relatively fast. You can have on late onset um, tuberculosis where they, <coughs> what's called galloping tuberculosis, they've been suffering as long as anybody else but their symptoms only appear a little bit later and it just seems as if they just, they just go down so quickly. Uh, according to Zopf, vampires were dreams inspired by the devil, so he took what would have been regarded as a rationalist approach at the time, but it doesn't sound very rationalist to us because the devil's still in the mix there. But uh, because he, he didn't actually believe in vampires themselves, he, he would have been regarded as a, as a science-y kind of a bloke. Um, there's a, <laughs> there's a, a, one of the first accounts to come out was a guy called Peter Plajogovic, who um, he died suddenly. Uh, he was a farmer in what was uh, Kizilova, then Austrian Serbia, Serbia, which is modern Hungary. And he, he died suddenly. So this is, this is your classic warning sign for a, for a vampire. Why, why would he die? What, what's he gone of? And the night that he was buried, he turned up and he asked his son for food. And his son, it doesn't, history doesn't record whether his son was alarmed or not, um, but I, I think he probably would be. He gave Peter Plajogovic some food. The next night, nothing happened. The night after that, Peter Plajogovic turned up and asked for food again, and this time his son turned him away. So you have this corpse coming back and seeking the, the comfort of you know, his, his family, wanting food, uh, and when his son turns him away, that's when he turns nasty. The idea is that he turns into a vampire and he wreaks havoc on the, um, on the local population. Now, at the time, probably, they would have simply dispatched Plajogovic's vampire the way that they had in times gone past, but with the Austrian Empire coming in, they couldn't just do that. It went up the chain, it went from the priest to the magistrate to the local large town, and they sent the imperial provisor, and uh, he gives this account. In this same village of Kislova, within a week, nine people, both young and old, died after suffering a 24-hour illness. So epidemic illness, a lot of people dying, and there's actually a, a sort of a pathological uh, kind of a... <coughs> while, they were, while they were alive but on their deathbed, the above-named, the above-mentioned Plajogovic had come to them in their sleep, laying himself on them and throttled them. We'll touch that upon that later when we go through sleep paralysis. It's far from uncommon with the malign supernatural to see these kind of nightly visitations where people are having the air drained out of them. By the time a gracious re resolution was received from Belgrade, perhaps the entire village, and this was supposed to have happened in Turkish times, could be destroyed by the evil spirit. So what you have um, is the imperial provisor begs the indulgence of his superiors. He says, I'm really sorry, I wouldn't have done this voluntarily, but I couldn't stop them. They went, they dug up the body, they did what they needed to do, and I know this is uncivilized, I know I shouldn't have done it, but I had no choice, they, they would have done it otherwise. And um, they, they believed they were making uh, an intercession that they were actually stopping Plajogovic's vampire killing any more people in the village. Uh, now, he himself was clearly quite impressed with what he saw when they, they dug the body up. I didn't detect the slightest odour that's otherwise characteristic of the dead, and the body, except for the nose, which was somewhat fallen away, was completely fresh. The hair and the beard, even the nails of which the old ones had fallen away, had grown on him. The old skin, which was somewhat whitish, had peeled away and a fresh one had emerged underneath it. 
The face, hands, feet, and the whole body were constituted, that they could not have been more complete in his lifetime. Not without astonishment, I saw some fresh blood at his mouth, which he had sucked from the people killed by him. We know now that people don't necessarily go through um, a formulaic um, rotting when they die. That the things that happen to your body after you die can vary according to you know, the time of year, the temperature, the microorganisms which are present in your body, um, probably what you had eaten before you died. There are so many factors, and yet you, you know, it's easy to be complacent, but we can draw on the internet, we can draw on forensic books we could you know we're all so clever aren't we but we're reading other people's information and if you had lived in a village of maybe 50 people and the only person who was your source of knowledge told you that actually people got smelly and kind of melted and it all had to happen within a month then you would think it was very peculiar if they didn't none of the things that he's described are actually particularly unusual post-mortem under certain conditions. Um, the blood at the, at the mouth, the liquid blood at the mouth is, is one that's mentioned a lot. And under certain circumstances that can happen, it really isn't unusual, and it's actually effluent from inside the corpse. But they characterised it as being taken from the victims, and this was, this was such from the victims. So the poor old imperial provisor was clearly very worried for his job because he made all sorts of excuses about how it wasn't his fault that they had, um, they had dug up Peter. The other key uh, incident that, that is cited is um, a guy called Arnold Powell, and this was reported in something called Visum et Repertum, seen and reported upon. Um, now, that Arnold Powell was a Hayduck, he was a, an agricultural labourer, and he was regarded, he, he was said to be a very pleasant man, but he had a sombre air. He had been a soldier during his lifetime before he'd settled down to farming, and he told the story of how he had been pestered by a vampire. And he had used the folk tradition to get rid of it, which was to um, smear himself with its blood and to eat some earth from its grave. There's, there's sort of um, a like-with-like homeopathic type of uh, approach to getting rid of unnatural predators, which is very common. It's not just with vampires. And I, just, I mean, can you imagine how gross people have eaten? We, we don't have any evidence that vampires have eaten people, but we've got quite a lot of evidence that people have eaten vampires. <laughs> because this is a standard cure for getting rid of them. So, um, so blood, earth, it's, it's actually pretty gross. Uh, so he, this had happened during his life. And then he died. And after he died, there was an epidemic of four mm. other people who also died. And, and people were going, oh, vampire outbreak, this is very bad. So they dug up Arnold. He was found to be a vampire. So were four other people in the village. And everybody you know, got the stakes out, cut their heads off the bodies, it did all the things they were supposed to do, and that was fine. But then it started again five years later, and by five years later we have the Austrian Empire <coughs> reporting on it again, and this is where Visimet Repertum comes in. So they tell the story of Arnold historically, and then they tell the story of the corpses that they're required to deal with here and now, the new vampire outbreak. And uh, the villagers were saying that because, I mean, Arnold was dealt with five years ago, it's hard to see how the contagion could have continued, and they reasoned that it must have continued through the cattle or the goats. Some vampire must have transmitted it to the cattle and the goats, the cattle and the goats have been, been incubating it, and it's out again. And I mean, you know, it doesn't sound too sensible to us, but that actually is, is a very good intuitive sense of a contagion. Um, 
it, it turned out not to be true, but there are animal vectors for contagions. You know, we've got the avian flu. I mean, we can we can get uh, flu directly from, from birds in some cases, and then it mutates, and we can pass it amongst human beings. So although it was complete tosh, nonetheless, their reasoning... They, they weren't stupid. Their reasoning was, was sound in some sense. They were doing their best under a very difficult <coughs> circumstance, as people do, as people always do. Um, now, the people who they found who they dug up and they found to be vampiric, was a woman, Stanner, who uh, died age 20 after a three-day illness following childbirth. Well, duh. You know, um, she probably wasn't a vampire. Uh, her uterus was inflamed and malodorous with the placenta still in place. So I don't think you need a degree in forensics to work out why Stanner really died, but she, she was pegged as a vampire. Uh, pegged literally, actually. And um, her baby had been buried but then pulled out of its grave by dogs and partially eaten. Now that's an interesting point because you couldn't, the most diligent dog in the world couldn't get to a body these days. But um, in those days they didn't have JCBs and they often didn't have coffins. Coffins are a very recent invention. They're very, uh, I mean, they're very energy intensive and, and expensive for one thing. Why on earth would you put a load of perfectly good wood um, in, into the ground? So the fact that the baby was accessible to a dog was probably only two or three feet underneath was another explanation, really, of why, um, of why it was pulled out by the dogs. Incidentally, dogs have an ambiguous relationship with the maligned dead in the supernatural because, on one hand, you, they, they sometimes are personified as the maligned supernatural, um, but on the other hand, they are sometimes seen as, as graveyard animals, as animals which actually act as gatekeepers and stop the maligned dead getting out of their graves. And it's been suggested by more than one person that the reason for this characterisation is because um, dogs will sniff out corpses that are dug, you know, that are anything other than very deeply buried. And so, if you see somebody, sort of, if you come, if you turn up at a dawn and there's somebody basically looks like he's trying to get out of his grave and he's being savaged by a dog, it looks like the dog is guardian. So it's thought that maybe graveyard dogs and graveyard dog mythology comes from that. Another woman had been buried with her child soon after parturition, again death after childbirth. Um, six weeks and five weeks later, respectively, the mother and the baby both had fresh blood in their thoracic cavities and hearts. Again, that fresh blood that people find so utterly compelling. Uh, an old woman was, um, appeared to be kind and healthy in death. Uh, she was probably ready to explode. Um, her blood was liquid and her viscera were fresh. A 20-year-old woman dead for over two weeks was fresh with a flushed and ruddy complexion, and when she moved, fresh blood flowed from her nose. This was incidentally, uh, there's a bit of folklore that if a person has murdered somebody, that the corpse will bleed afresh in their presence, and there's no doubt, I think, that it, you know, corpses are, are manipulated a little. If somebody moves it, and then, of course, it, it starts gushing blood, and say, oh, well, he did it. Must, people, must have been, um, people must have been accused and, and thought to be murderers for, for this throughout history. Um, two teenage boys, one prepubescent girl, a woman, a man, a baby, and an old man were all found in a vampiric state. So... What we have here is, they were all dealt with, by the way, and that took care of, of the vampirism. And again, you know, the guy who wrote, Fluckinger, who wrote Visamet Repertum, didn't particularly approve, but he didn't particularly get a choice either. Basically, they had to take care of Arnold Paul's <coughs> undead army and um, in, in the traditional way, and they did so. 
so what we have here, we have a couple of themes going on with vampire deaths. One is epidemic and or premature death, people who haven't got to their three, four, school years and ten, and unnatural decomposition, which is not particularly unnatural under different circumstances. This is the grave of a woman called Mercy Brown. She died in 1892 in Rhode Island. And um, they never used the word vampire, but it is definitely vampire folklore. And they've been written about later as vampires. Uh, I'm, I'm making a podcast on this. I've got some video footage. I went up to Rhode Island earlier this year. And the epidemic disease that people suffered from then in Rhode Island and, and that sort of that area up there was tuberculosis, which is associated with... Uh, overcrowded conditions, poor sanitation, uh, and we've got quite good records of what her family thought, what her father, George Brown, thought when all of this happened, and we know that he didn't really believe it, and probably a lot of his neighbours didn't really believe it, but he'd lost his wife, he'd lost two daughters, and he was just about to lose a son as well. So when neighbours suggested to him, look, you know, she might be one of those people who comes back from the dead, who's draining the rest of your family, he, he submitted to have her body dug up and she was discovered to be in an unnaturally fresh state and she was dealt with as a vampire. Uh, the, unfortunately, you can see from oh, at the back there, her, her grave is the back, it, it's got a little metal collar around it and there are a lot of people who go there. Her, her grave stone has been nicked at one point, uh, vandalised at others. There are a couple of other... Um, New England vampires who, who get the same attention. There's one called Sarah Tillinghast, and uh, I know where her grave is, but I'm, I'm not going to publish it because I'm sure the people whose garden it is now in would, would uh, appreciate the privacy over the notoriety. Um, because pe people are still really into this folklore. Her body was reasonably fresh, but this, this is a black and white photo, but it was taken the same day, not 50 yards away. This is the freezer, this is the icebox where they kept the bodies, and she died in winter. Uh, she, she died in January, was exhumed in March, and it's cold up there. I mean, it is cold in winter. It, the ground is far too hard to dig. You, you can't put someone six feet under in January in Rhode Island unless you've got a JCB. And so the probability is that Mercy Brown was kept in what is essentially an outdoor freezer for two months. So it's not particularly surprising that she was in good shape when they dug her up, when they were finally able, what they probably planted her and dug her back up again, or just got her straight out of the freezer. Um, just a little bit more about vampires. This is, there was a great preoccupation in Europe with the idea that vampires chewed. Vampires chew everything. The idea was that they were so incredibly hungry that uh, they would make all of these snuffling noises, all of these, these gross snuffling noises in their, in their graves. And there are a couple of books written about it. There is um, The History and Philosophical Dissertation on the Chewing Dead by Philip Rohr. And he, he favoured the supernatural explanation. And there is The Book of the Chewing Dead and Their Tombs. And uh, he said the dead couldn't appear in tangible form, nor the devil take control of their bodies. Looking at this later with a more sceptical point of view, you can notice that really the accounts of vampires snuffling happen in the late summer, early autumn, and it's associated with, um, with, with the plague <coughs> cycle. Uh, basically, when spring comes along and circumstances are more hospitable for rats and for fleas and for all of those kinds of things, the, the rat and the flea population generally sort of peaks 
And as they peak, then the fleas pass on the, the disease, given another couple of weeks for incubation and for, for a, a disease to pass its way through in an epidemic fashion through a, um, a population. What you have is by late summer or early autumn, you have got a pile of bodies, not enough people to dig holes for them, and you've, you've got massive pits and people sometimes being shoved in only two or three feet underneath the ground. And um, it's not surprising that they explode and they make pretty gross noises. And people would just misattribute the reasons for things that were going on. They would, they would dig people up and they would find their extremities gone and they would think, oh, they must have been so hungry, the first thing they did was eat their own fingers. Um, or you would find corpses where entrails were, people were, were next to each other. And uh, the phrase was, gnawed out each other's vitals. A couple of vampires had gnawed out each other's vitals. Well, of course, you know, your vitals are full of microorganisms. They're the first bits to rot, uh, the first bits to explode if, um, if you build up, uh, you know, a large amount of um, methane from bacteria. So it's perfectly understandable forensic stuff, but... If you're living next to a plague pit and you can hear people munching at night and you think that they munch on the living, that's not a very comforting thought. This is um, a woman who was, she was dug up, this guy called Matteo Borini of the University of Florence, the American Academy of Forensic Sciences in Denver. And he found this woman in the small island of uh, Lazaretto Nuovo in the Venice Lagoon. And he, she'd had a brick put in her mouth and um, he said, oh, well, she's a vampire, and everybody laughed at him. And I think she probably is. I think that he probably found someone who was reckoned to be chewing in her grave, or perhaps somebody had had a dream that she was sort of floating back in through the room and sucking the life out of them. And the, the, these, this activity is certainly well enough attested um, to, uh, as an impediment for vampirism in, in Eastern Europe. And I, I don't see any reason why he should be thought of as a bit of a flake for suggesting that it happened in Venice too. Now, child mortality is a big theme with unnatural predators. The, the children certainly don't get to the three school years and ten, and um, they can be both the victims of unnatural predators and they can turn into unnatural predators themselves after they've died. We look at present-day mortality rates for newborn infants. There are nine per thousand in Western Europe. If, if you suffer the loss of a child when you've given birth to it, you are very, very unlucky. But if you compare that with um, 10 to 25% in Chile, India and Zambia, um, I, I suspect in India, India's not a particularly backward country, this has got to be... Uh, the figures have got to be a couple of years old, or this has got to be about among some classes of people in India. But or at ten percent in newborn infants in early medieval England, you can see what you, you can see that actually it was it's a very common thing. Uh, giving birth is a particular particular hazard for human beings because we have such big babies and such comparatively little hips. And um, you know we're at our evolutionary, we're on our evolutionary margins as far as that's concerned. And uh, child, you know, post mortality death rates are not particularly um, bad now, but they were they were a desperate challenge for our ancestors. This is the wild hunt. It's a it's a folkloric construct. It's Nordic originally in its uh, in its in its beginnings, and. The, under Christian folklore, the, people still believed in the wild hunt, wild hunt but because it was, it was devilish, anything that wasn't Christian was devilish, so um, the, the wild hunt was said to have the souls of unbaptized children. 
in it. They would come along and they would sweep up the unbaptized, the unblessed children. The original version was probably a bit kinder because there was a, a mother goddess, Holla, who, um, who was said to look after unborn children. So it was a bit more of a compensatory system if, if your baby died after you had given birth. Then you had the idea that there was this benevolent mother goddess who would sweep it up and look after it. Turned a bit nasty under Christianity though. This is a penangalang. It's an illustration by Floyd Jones Hughes and penangalangs are officially my favourite unnatural predator. They're absolutely fabulous and uh, it is my life's work to to spread the news of the penangalangs to, to the whole world, hopefully. Um, the, uh, a penangalang is, is a witch woman, or it can be a woman who died in childbirth, more often a, a witch woman, and she detaches herself at the neck, and her entrails are dangling, and then she goes flying around in a forest at night looking for the blood of newborn children. A bit of a menace and not particularly attractive. And then in the morning when she wants to get her entrails back into the, the neck hole, she keeps a vat of vinegar and she, puts, she dips her entrails in the vat of vinegar and then she can get them back into her neck hole, you know, sort of fixes everything and then goes about her life normally. Uh, so if, if your child <coughs> is suffering from some kind of just general declining disease, you'd be thinking, oh, maybe it's a penangalang. And the thing you do to stop the penangalang visiting anymore is you put thorns around your window, the, the aperture of your window, because she can't fly through without getting her entrails stuck on your thorns. So very mechanical means of, um, of, uh, of, of intervention there. This is uh, a picture by one of my favorite artists, Brian Froud, and it represents a fairy changeling this from Celtic mythology and the idea with um, fairy changelings is that um, is that the fairies would take one of their old people who they couldn't be bothered to look after and they know that people are soft over their babies so what they do is by glamour by magic they would stick the old fairy in the, in the crib instead of the child and then they would take the child away and they would they would take the child to fairyland and the idea is that this old fairy would be looked after very well by the stupid humans who would dote upon the baby no matter what it did. And it was, um, it, it was sometimes used as a way of looking after a child who was afflicted by something or other. Perhaps if a child was, uh, was slow developmentally or um, had some kind of psychological issue, perhaps autistic, something like that, then people would say, ah, look after the baby because the fairies won't be happy if you, if you mistreat one of their, their old people. <coughs> but more often it was the other way. Because the, the idea was that if you mistreated this child, and the classic way of mistreating a, a fairy was uh, to put it on a hot shovel, then it would whiz up the it would whiz up the chimney, and the fairies would leave the real child outside, so you could go and get your real baby that didn't have developmental difficulties. Now um, the problem is that people did this with really really hot shovels. Uh, this was, um, this was something that Sir William Wilde said. He said, a, a disease of frequent and fatal occurrence to young children in, in this country. It's this affliction. Um, he was talking about marasmus. Marasmus is a, a 19th century term for just failure to thrive, probably tuberculosis. Um, has given rise to the popular ideas respecting the changeling and to the many superstitious notions entertained by the peasantry respecting their supposed fairy-stricken children, so that year by year, up to the present day, we read accounts of deaths that are produced by cruel endeavours designed to cure children and young persons of such maladies. <coughs> so it, it got serious. 
Um, this was an account from the Morning Post of 1828, and this was Anne Roche, a woman of very advanced age. So if she was advanced age, well, I mean, let, let's call her 70, so she was born probably 1760 or something like that. Uh, so she clearly, she wouldn't have been educated, uh, wouldn't have been exposed to, to much outside information. She was indicted for the murder of a young Michael Lee, uh, a young child, by drowning him in the River Flesk. Um, it turned out to be a homicide committed under the grossest superstition. The child, though four years old, could neither walk nor stand uh, nor speak. It was thought to be fairy struck. Upon cross-examination, the witnesses said that it wasn't done with intent to kill the child, but to cure it, to put the fairy out of it. This is a man called Michael Cleary, and uh, there was a, a, a children's rhyme, a sort of a skipping rhyme. Are you a witch, or are you a fairy, or are you the wife of Michael Cleary? Michael Cleary, unfortunately, was involved in the murder of a woman. It's the only known case of um, an adult fairy possession in the 19th century in Ireland. More often it was done to kids who were, who were helpless. But um, he and his extended family ended up murdering his wife, Bridget, by uh, actually cooking her over a fire. They suspended her over a fire in the belief that she was possessed by fairies. And there's a very good book on this, this whole thing. It's written by a woman called Angela Bourke. And whenever you go into any of these cases, so much is lost in history, but she's dug up a lot because it only happened a century ago. You can see the, the kind of social and societal um, tensions that that whole family were under. So it's not completely spontaneous. It isn't, oh, you know, there's Michael's sort of cooked Bridget today. Um, it could have happened to anyone. You you see that they were, they were, they were socially on the rise. Uh, Bridget had, I think she had her own sewing machine, so she was a seamstress, he was a cooper, and they had a house of their own. So they were actually, they, they were Catholic and they were doing quite well at the time. She was friends with the local Protestant landowner, so um, there might have been a bit of resentment there, or certainly there, you know, there was a bit of fraternisation there, which probably wouldn't have been appreciated by their more sort of earthbound family who, who, who weren't living such privileged lives. And um, also they'd been married a long time and they didn't have children and it was unlikely to be voluntary. So you have, uh, you know, infertility, you have this, this sort of larger social description of why, again, this scapegoating mechanism could come out and could end up focusing on one person who unfortunately suffers very, very badly for it. Another category after child mortality, if you think about present day mortality rates for women giving birth is one in 15 in some parts of Africa. I mean, it's absolutely astonishingly high. One in 50,000 in Norway. If, if you die in this country giving birth, you are exceedingly unlucky. I mean, we have so many interventions um, and so many people don't. And our ancestors haven't. It was probably, apart from epidemic death, it was, it was the way to die as a woman. If you made it past 45 or so, without dying, you had a reasonable chance of making it to 70. A lot of women died in childbirth. This is a few examples of, um, these are a few examples of, of some creatures who are either, uh, who, who kill women in childbirth or women come back after they have died in childbirth. There's the uh, Hedali of India, um, a woman who's died within 10 days of childbirth, and she's prevented by uh, rising by nailing four iron nails into the corner of her grave. Um, mustard seeds on the way home if cremated. This is um, an interesting 
theme in unnatural predator folklore is all over the world they are thought of as being incredibly stupid and you can do you can divert unnatural predators you, you know vampires um, Chinese vampires everything by putting items of a particular nature around the place and they're compelled to count them or to pick them up there's uh, an Italian kind of a, a witch called a strix and the way that you catch her in the dawn, she turns up at night, and the way that you catch her is you put a dead cat in the room, and she'll be compelled to sit there and to count its hairs, and then you, she won't finish before morning, so you catch her. Um, I don't know why they're so interested in items of a particular nature or why they're so stupid, but they universally are. Uh, there's the Thailand pie, there's um, the pantheon of gods and supernaturals, and uh, they, there are, there's a certain type of, of pie which is um, uh, women who've been killed in childbirth. Uh, the Bajang, Malaysian people of uh, Western Malaysia, um, believe in this creature which is dangerous to women in childbirth. And in fact, <laughs> childbirth is regarded in, in many religions as, or uh, the time around childbirth, you're, you're ritually unclean. And if you consider that um, disease is thought of as unclean. I mean, women are more likely to die around times of childbirth. So, the, the sort of the ritual uncleanliness is—I mean, it's completely out of order to say that now that we have a germ theory of disease. But in times gone by, you could see how people would think that somebody would just not be in a state of grace because they would be more vulnerable to supernatural assault and and to death. And the Churl of India has her feet on backwards. This is an interesting causal relationship because one of the ways of, uh, of, of slowing down unnatural predators is doing something hideous to their body so they can't move. And the chances are that if somebody died in childbirth, people would take the precaution of, of um, breaking her ankles and turning her feet around so that she wouldn't be able to, you know, she'd think she was walking forwards and she couldn't. So uh, the, this, the feet on backwards element is probably due to um, post-mortem treatment of the corpse to stop it coming back in the right direction. Uh, the Polnis of Bohemia, um, postpartum women. Uh, the Civitateo of Mexico, it, it kind of translates as noblewoman or princess, but um, something that's done with unnatural predators a great deal is to appease them, and you appease them with nice names. The devil was called, uh, you know, the gentleman, there are all sorts of nice names for him. And so if you come up with the name, oh, noble women, then you're basically saying to all of these dangerous spirits of women who've died in childbirth, oh yeah, they're, they're princesses, they're absolutely fa fabulous, you know, they're fantastic. And the Civitateos used to, um, you would meet them at crossroads. And, and they were very, very dangerous indeed. How are we doing for time? Because I could bang on all night. No? Okay, excellent. And uh, here, this is from a guy called um, Skeets, did something about Malay magic. Now, that, that's models that he got in Malaysia. The one on the left-hand side is a penangalang, and you can see the attempt at doing the, the entrails and things. And the one on the right is a langsweer. And a langsweer... Uh, is, is a woman with long, tapering nails. She's got a little hole in her neck. She's apparently, she's quite domesticable as a wife. You've got to get her hair and you've got to shove it in the hole at the back of her neck. But if you can't domesticate her in that way, she's an absolute menace um, because uh, she goes around uh, killing people, sucking the blood of children. And the idea is that she's the woman, a woman who has died of the shock of hearing that her child has died after childbirth. This is um, a washer by the Ford, particularly, a particularly sort of plaintive, sad kind of a creature. This is Celtic, 
mythology again. And the, the banshee is uh, is an Irish, Irish mythological feature. It's associated with uh, old families, with authentically old uh, traditional Irish families rather than immigrant families. And the idea with the banshee is that it is a death messenger. The, the literature seems to suggest the banshee doesn't actually cause the death, it just reports it to the people who are sufficiently important to have their own family banshee. And the washer by the ford is a kind of a more democratic creature, um, a democratic version of the same creature. Uh, she'll wail for anybody. But there's also there's a different kind of a, a causal relationship there because if you get too close to her, she will flick her washing out and it can kill or it can paralyse you. Uh, and the washer by the ford is thought to be a woman who died in childbirth and is compelled to wash the clothes of the dead in streams until the day of her natural demise. There's that idea again, natural demise. You know, she should have got to 70, she didn't, she died in childbirth. So there's just little sort of subtle intimations all the time that people are, are resentful of, of being nipped off in their prime. There's something wrong with the universe if, if people die before they should, in, in uh, quotations. This is... Um, I've included this because I like it. It's by an artist called William Stout, and it's the same creature, I'll washer by the ford. So, as, as I've said, uncleanliness after birth is possibly derived from the, the time after birth when women and children genuinely were vulnerable to postnatal death. Um, the Sacred Book of the Parsis directs a fire to burn continually during a pregnancy and three days after the birth so the demons and fiends may not be able to do any damage and harm. People, people have done all sorts of things and um, put stones with natural apertures above the bed, um, kept metallic objects underneath the pillow, uh, iron objects especially because iron is very effective against unnatural predators, sought to be a very potent metal. Uh, the elfin race was supposed to be on the watch for unchurched or unsaved mothers uh, to have the benefit of their milk. And the time between childbirth and churching was a great danger when wives were more likely to be kidnapped to fairyland. Um, on the island of Lewis, fire used to be carried around mothers and babies before they were churched and christened. <coughs> this, this bears very strong, um, uh, strong strands of, of pre-Christian thought there. Uh, I, I don't believe that paganism as a separate and distinct religion was continued self-consciously throughout the Christian times, but clearly plenty of pagan practices still resonated and still carried on. And the idea of, of, of a fire, uh, James Fraser mentions the idea of um, a need fire or a new fire uh, in many places up north and, and in Ireland, where at a certain time of year you would extinguish all of the present ones and you would make brand new ones afresh with a piece of flint, and then that would be your new fire, it would be cleansing, and you would run your um, livestock through two pillars of it. And So the idea that a fire is, is cleansing um, and can be used in rituals is, is fairly ubiquitous. And of course it is. If, uh, if you've got a village that's suffering with plague, and the village burns down, chances are the plague will go away too. Um, St. Augustine in Civitit Dei, the city of God, said that the god Silvanus was feared likely to injure women in childbirth and to protect them. Three men had to go around the house during the night and strike the threshold with a hatchet. And um, he makes merry over the superstition. And I don't know if any of you can recall what St. Augustine in his turn believed, but I think he had a bit of a cheek making merry over other people's superstitions, to be honest. Now this, let's get on to sleep paralysis. 
Um, I'm sure a lot of you will have heard Chris's talk on sleep paralysis, and it's, it's through the, it's definitive really, so I'll just breeze through this quickly. Uh, let's give an account here. This is, Jay, this is Jay Bond, who wrote an essay on the incubus or nightmare, and he describes this experience. A difficult respiration, a violent oppression on the breast, and a total privation of bodily motion. In this agony, they sigh, groan, utter indistinct sounds, and remain in the jaws of death till, by the utmost efforts of nature or some external assistance, they escape out of the dreadful, torpid state. As soon as they shake off that vast oppression and are able to move the body, they're affected with strong palpitation, great anxiety, languor, and uneasiness. And um, <laughs> Chris uh, showed us this earlier in the day. This is an illustration by Fuseli, which is... Uh, which is called the nightmare. Now the thing about the nightmare is we use it in a very loose term these days, it means it's a bad dream, you know, you have a bad dream about something. Historically it was used in a far more specific context. Uh, this is by Armand Nish. One passion is almost never absent that of utter and incomprehensible dread. In every instance there's a sense of oppression and helplessness. He can hardly drag one limb after the other. His blows are utterly ineffective. That sounds a bit like false awakening to me, which is um, related to, to nightmare. Uh, as a, another illustration of exactly the same thing. And what it is, is you have an impression of wakefulness, um, you're immobile, you're afraid, and you correctly perceive your environment. So you, 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 know, you don't think you're in a desert or in some dream state or other. You know you're lying there in your own bedroom and you have all of those things simultaneously. They, those, were the, uh, those are the definitions that uh, David Hufford came up with in 1982. And just a quick poll, in, in this room, has anybody suffered from that at all? Yeah, so a, a lot of people, it's actually fairly common, it's a fairly common experience. One of the things that Hufford points out in his book is that it's actually easier to get information out of people where there is a cultural um, language for it. He, he did his work in Newfoundland where there are a lot of um, Irish Scots people who still speak very um, easily of the, of the supernatural. He said Mormons were very similar. They, they, they believe in the supernatural. They don't have any difficulty either admitting supernatural experiences or having a language for it. So where you have this language, you, you, people speak about it, people speak about these experiences. Where you don't have this language, as in our society, people tend just not to talk about it um, and think that they're very peculiar and very alone when it happens. Now, it must have affected all kinds of other folklore. This is from Cotton Mather, who reports of the attack of Richard Conlon on Bridget Bishop. This was on the Salem Witches in um, the United States. He was annoyed with the apparition of this Bridget, um, uh, <coughs> excuse me, and two more that were strangers to him. It came and oppressed him so that he could neither stir himself nor wake anyone else. And, you know, it might not be, but that sounds like sleep paralysis to me. Um, Jonathan Harker you know, has an experience of something that absolutely sounds like sleep paralysis you, in the Dracula novel. So I think it's probably an experience that if you know what you're looking for, you can spot it from all sorts of historical accounts. Uh, now, what causes sleep paralysis? There, there were lots of theories in the past, and the reason why I include this particular picture is because I suffered for this. Um, it's a cheese and onion sandwich. And uh, I used to like cheese and onion sandwiches before I went to sleep. And my mum was um, a reasonably liberal sort of woman who let me do what I wanted, really, in that respect. 
but my grandmother once stopped me from having a cheese and onion sandwich before I went to sleep on the basis that it would give me nightmares. And it was actually, it was a bit of old folklore and it came from Galen who thought that gastric disturbances were the reason that people suffered from what we call nightmare sleep paralysis. So that was a theory which prevailed for a very, very long time. And the, the 19th century uh, explanation was that it was actually circulation rather than gastric disturbance. And then later on you get psychoanalytical um, interpretations which say that it's due to unresolved psychological issues. Uh, now we have we, we really have more uh, neurological type explanations some people seem to be prone to it more than other people seem to be prone to it and um, and you can induce it if you want to I mean if, if you're susceptible um, perhaps perhaps you wouldn't but this is pretty cool um, so what it is is if you regard going to sleep as a series of logical steps if you don't turn the switches off or on in the right order, then you can, you can just get consciousness colliding with sleep. So you experience what your REM body, your, your paralysed body, and, and you shouldn't have an active body while you're going through REM sleep, otherwise you'll act out your dreams, um, colliding with your daytime consciousness. And in, in that state, it's thought your breathing is so shallow because your body's asleep that you could misinterpret that very shallow breathing as actually being oppressed as, as something sitting on your chest. Um, this is, uh, I, I kind of, um, I've, I've had a lot of the, uh, the things there, and, and most of them are quite fun actually, but, um, and I drew that as a schematic, it probably isn't representative at all of any actual literal uh, neurological condition, but it, it's the way I think of as these various types of phenomena. If you, if you say you've got a waking body and a sleeping body, and they do different things. And you've got a waking mind and a sleeping mind, and they do different things. And, and normally, obviously, you have the waking body and the waking mind together, and the sleeping body and the sleeping mind together. But if these things go wrong, then you get in different intersections, and you can get different kinds of um, sleep disorders happening. And I firmly believe that um, sleep paralysis is, is, is the flip side of lucid dreaming. You've got... Uh, if you... If you have a waking mind and a sleeping body and you perceive yourself to be in a dream state, then you can control your own dreams. It's utterly, utterly cool. And um, if you have the same thing, but you perceive yourself in your real environment, in your bedroom, then you have sleep paralysis. That probably isn't cool at all. Uh, I've been menaced by Cadbury Smash Robots. And... Um, I, I couldn't even come up with, with cool assailants at all. I have to be assailed by the most naff things you can imagine. But, there, but it is truly scary. There is a fear component there. And in fact, everything that you should do to avoid sleep paralysis, uh, you do to encourage lucid dreaming. And, and so you could probably, uh, certainly that's something I've done, is, is use behavioural techniques to, to say, OK, all right, well, I'm not going to do sleep paralysis anymore. I'm going to turn the same neurological phenomenon into lucid dreaming and uh, so then you go around uh, the, the way that you end up getting sleep paralysis a lot of the time is um, is by sleeping on your back by far the largest number of victims are 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 um, and by having funny sleeping hours if you know people on shifts um, people who take afternoon naps that kind of thing that uh, they just all of the mechanisms of your normal sleep tend to go awry and you can either suffer from sleep paralysis or if you want to trigger off lucid dreaming that's the way to do it as well, to short yourself on sleep, wake up for a few hours and then go back to bed again on your back.
it can go horribly wrong, but you know, what's life without a bit of, of, of adventure? So um, that, was, that, that was the schematic that I think pr- sort of pretty much covers all the, all, the sleep, uh, all the sleep disorders, including night terrors and sleepwalking. Let's see if I've got one more thing there. Yes, now this is a, um, a bit of news from the United Kingdom Church of God. Now, I don't want to settle, to, to sort of pick out the United Kingdom Church of God as, as being worse than any, anybody else. Uh, there are a lot of people who still literally believe in sleep paralysis and who offer religious interventions for it. But you could see here, I mean, this is actually pretty serious. This woman seems to be suffering from what is absolutely classic sleep paralysis. And... Um, what was the process of deliverance? At the beginning, it was a battle. I had evil manifestations in my body and needed to be prayed for. Um, I felt like my head was on fire. Uh, and, and the thing is that when the, the abiding experience of sleep paralysis is fear, and if somebody goes around encouraging other people to believe that they're being assailed by demons, I don't think that can be helping. Uh, the, I mean, obviously, praying for people and taking part in religious uh, ceremonies would help for a lot of people because um, if you believe that the supernatural being that you are calling upon is much more powerful than the supernatural being who's trying to choke you to death every night, it it must work for a lot of people. But I I do feel that um, that if people offer these kind of services, they really should offer counselling about sleep paralysis as well because it's very easy to stop if you don't want it. There are very easy interventions that you can take to, to stop suffering from it. But um, UKCJ, but, but sort of no more particularly you know, vigorous in this regard than a lot of other churches. Um, so that's it. I hope very much that you enjoyed that and uh, I'm open to questions if you want any, got any questions on any of that.